The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com backslash us backslash microgrid. I think as we're doing in a sustainable manner, that will hopefully drive other manufacturers to speed up as well. And it, it really turns into a competitive, almost synergistic relationship where competition drives innovation and we see advancements across the board. This is The Interchange, Recharged. I'm David Van Miller. The race to decarbonize is well underway. Every day I see new initiatives and technologies which could solve some of the biggest challenges we face in getting to net zero. It's a learning curve for me, but I'm all in and I hope you are too. So join me as I navigate through the world of clean technology and together we can learn something new on every episode of the podcast. Imagine yourself in an airplane seat, looking out the window at the endless sky and the blue of the ocean below. You look at the screen in front, at the animated plane moving across the map, and you see you're approaching Miami International Airport. You think, that's strange. We only left London three hours ago. Then you remember. It's 2030, and you're on a brand new, carbon-neutral supersonic plane. The world has shrunk as thousands fly from Europe to the U.S. in half the time it currently takes. It's a tantalizing image, but how realistic is it? And can a supersonic plane ever be made truly sustainable? On The Interchange today, I'm joined by Ben Murphy, head of sustainability at Boom. Boom is building a supersonic plane, the Overture. The company claims that it can have travel times by flying at Mach 1.7, twice as fast as current commercial airplanes, and all with zero carbon emissions. How will it work? What sustainable aviation fuel will it use? With major investment already secured by the likes of United and American Airlines, are we inching closer to realizing the dream of ultra-fast, carbon-neutral air travel? Let's find out. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. So supersonic commercial flight is not new. Uh, we had the Concorde a while ago that was decommissioned in 2003, but I know it was fuel inefficient. It was uneconomical. So what's different about Boom? Uh, how did you guys start? Yeah, absolutely. So Boom started uh, on the foundation of uh, making the world a more connected place, making it more accessible and easier to travel. And um, we think that's a really important mission. Uh, when you look at the history of transportation over the last 200 years, um, it used to be that you never left your home village and you know a journey across the ocean was a one-way trip. Since then, we've seen huge advancements in the speed of travel from steamships and rail that get you more quickly uh, across long distances. Um, and then the advent of flight really uh, unlocked what it meant to be able to travel. Uh, the prop planes uh, in the start of the century and then really the jet era in the 50s and 60s made it practical for people to travel long distances across the oceans in a reasonable time. And that fundamentally changed entire economies uh, for the better. And it, it really made the world more connected. It, it allowed for a lot of cultural exchange, uh, socioeconomic advancements, and, and other second order impacts that come with a more connected world. 
The Concorde was the pinnacle uh, of speed, if you will. Um, it was a technological marvel, uh, although it was a bit ahead of its day. It, it wasn't uh, environmentally or e- economically sustainable. But a lot has changed since the 60s when the Concorde was developed. Uh, we've seen advancements in uh, jet engine technology. So Overture, our commercial airliner, will fly using modern turbofan engines that are quieter and more fuel efficient. Composite materials have advanced, um, carbon fibers, um, that enable both lighter weight structures as well as uh, more aerodynamically optimized shapes to be produced than, than you can with the Concorde's metallics. Uh, the third is computational methods that allow you to analyze the aerodynamics. And that allows you to do hundreds of iterations uh, overnight, whereas the Concorde would have to build a new wind tunnel model to test each iteration. Um, and then finally, the, uh, the advent of sustainable aviation fuels really enable net zero carbon operations for long haul aviation. So tell us a little bit about the aviation fuel that you're using. Sure. So sustainable aviation fuel has been in development now for 15 or 20 years, but it's really now reaching an inflection point where it's very mature. At its core, uh, what sustainable aviation fuel or SAF does is it uh, closes the carbon loop for every atom of of carbon that's emitted, um, you're pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, You can do this through a number of different mechanisms. The more conventional ones are are biomass. Um, You know, when a plant grows, it pulls carbon out of the air to grow. You then harvest that plant and convert that into fuel. People are familiar with with ethanol is probably the best example. SAFs are looking to the future of more sustainable feedstocks. In order to qualify as a SAF, it has to achieve at least a 50% carbon reduction. And there's a lot of technologies that are uh, enabling true net zero carbon operation. One of my favorite technologies is called power to liquid. This is where you use renewable energy to pull carbon out of the atmosphere, combine that with a hydrogen molecule, uh, and then you're, you're left with a hydrocarbon that is nearly chemical identical to fossil fuels, but has a net zero carbon footprint uh, because you've pulled out as much carbon as what you eventually put back into the atmosphere. And what about the costs associated with that? So right now, sustainable aviation fuels are about two to three times the cost of fossil fuels. Um, Actually, right now, because of the crisis in Ukraine, fuel prices have have risen a bit. And and so um, SAF is probably closer to about 2x. Um, And that's a great benefit of of sustainable aviation fuel is that it enables energy independence and it decouples the price of aviation fuel from the price of fossil fuel. That being said, it is still in its infancy, Um, sustainable aviation fuel, that is. They've been around, but in very small quantities for a long time. Um, And so just like any technology, you have a typical S-curve where it takes a lot of time and investment to advance a technology. Then you hit a rapid acceleration where the technology matures, demand increases, and it becomes a self-sustaining feedback loop of of advancing the technology and and driving down prices. And so, uh, you know, we think in the coming decade that you're going to see sustainable aviation fuel prices rapidly drop um, and become very competitive with uh, fossil-derived prices. And what about the the overture, the plane itself? Uh, what about the costs there? Because I know it's made with recycling at the end of life possibility. So what are the costs associated with that? 
Yeah, so because it's a clean sheet aircraft, um, you, you bring up a great point that we are able to integrate sustainable mechanisms into the entire design process. Uh, be it, you know, we're going to break ground on our final assembly line, the Overture Superfactory, later this year. And so we're able to build our manufacturing facilities with sustainability in mind, renewable energy use, um, all the way through ensuring that our vehicle is compatible with 100% SAF to the end of life. And what can we do now in the design phase to either integrate recycled materials or more sustainable materials into the vehicle or uh, ensure that the design is designed for end-of-life recycling. All of those considerations, um, along with the, the engineering designs, show a base price of around $200 million per vehicle, um, which we think will be quite compelling to airlines when you look at the entire operating economics. I know you're supposed to be flying uh, the Overture. Our schedule is 2026. Uh, with passenger flights in 2029. How is that timeline still looking? Is is the testing coming along nicely? Where are you actually in that process? Yeah, so that's the timeline that we're targeting. Um, that's based um, on some tried and true mechanisms that other aircraft have followed. It's a multi-step process. So the Overture program, like I said, we will be breaking ground on um, our final assembly line later this year, uh, which will enable us to uh, start getting the tooling and everything that's required for assembly um, on the timeline to to hit those milestones. Um, there's a lot of other mechanisms here. We were excited to announce some of our tier one suppliers back at the Farnborough Air Show in July, um, including Eaton, Collins, and Safran. Um, and so those were other critical milestones to ensure that the uh, aircraft components are being assembled uh, designed, manufactured, and assembled on that timeline. So we're looking forward to continuing to to hit those targets as uh, as we advance the program. Um, and that is for our Overture aircraft. Another piece of our development process um, is our one-third scale experimental demonstrator, um, XB1. This is a, a vehicle that's designed to advance the technologies, build the team, build our safety culture, build our partnerships, and validate a lot of the engineering assumptions that are being made in the Overture design. XB1 is, is fully complete. It's uh, actively being ground tested right now. Um, and we look forward to shipping it out to Mojave to get ready for flight testing uh, later this year. How do you see this impacting aviation in the future? I mean, do you see it coming out initially as a premium product? I mean, the Concorde obviously was, was a premium flight, uh, and it stayed that way until it's decommissioning. Uh, but do you see this gaining a foothold in the future of aviation, not only from a speed standpoint, but from a sustainability standpoint as well? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, supersonics are still, um, when we think about the technology S curve, they're still at the bottom of that curve. Um, we have innovated extensively from the Concorde, uh, but this is still only the second iteration of supersonics. Um, so our vehicle is catering to, to business class passengers. Um, we expect that airlines will be able to operate it profitably at existing business class fares. But that's not where we want to stop. We hope that this spurs more innovation, just like SAF, and we see a positive feedback loop of technological advancements, improved uh, economics, maybe larger aircraft, different variants, different mission cases. Um, and eventually, we hope that the future of aviation is that everybody is flying supersonic and that uh, we really unlock the benefits of, of speed to the entire global population. 
I think the same is true um, on sustainability. Um, we are committed to net zero carbon and have very aggressive timelines to achieve that. We're also designing our vehicle to operate on 100% SAF. Um, currently, there's a blend limit. It's only allowed to be used at 50%, uh, with the other 50% being uh, traditional fossil jet fuel. And so we we look forward to a future where all of aviation is, is powered by uh, renewable fuels, be it electric for shorter flights, hydrogen for, uh, you know, mid-length flights, and then uh, net zero sustainable aviation fuels for long-haul flights. We had a, a previous podcast where we were talking to a company building hydrogen engines uh, for the future, and, and their timeline is, you know, next five to 10 years to really get to a commercialized timeline as well. Yeah, we're really excited about the future uh, and advancements that that we're seeing in hydrogen. Um, right now, it is lower technology readiness level, lower TRL, but there is a lot of focus on it. And, you know, there's a future in which uh, potentially all of aviation can switch to hydrogen, um, but there's a lot more challenges to get there. Um, right now, SAF can be used in existing aircraft and existing engines. Hydrogen uh, will require entirely new aircraft. Um, there's also the infrastructure challenge, uh, where right now there's infrastructure to transport liquid fuels, liquid hydrocarbon fuels like SAF around the world to airports, hydrogen will require unique infrastructure. So, you know, really excited about the future of the hydrogen economy um, and seeing where that technology goes. I just think it's a little bit less mature. I'll also note that, you know, I think it's very synergistic when we look at renewable fuels. Sustainable aviation fuel, like I mentioned, the power to liquid process um, needs carbon and hydrogen. So as we see hydrogen production advance, and that technology get cheaper and cheaper um, and more widespread, that will also benefit um, sustainable aviation fuels that need to use hydrogen in their production. So I think everybody is really pulling in the same direction of increasing the availability of renewable energy, increasing hydrogen production, and then looking at sectors that are difficult to decarbonize and, and looking for solutions like power to liquid SAF um, to decarbonize those, those difficult to decarbonize sectors. You mentioned SAF can be used in existing engines. Is is that a full amount of SAF that could be in there, or does it have to be some type of blend, and does there have to be any type of modifications to it to allow for it? Yeah, so right now, like I mentioned, SAF is limited to a 50% blend. This is because there is a uh, there's a molecule in fossil fuels or a category of molecules called aromatics, and those aromatics cause rubber seals to swell, and they make sure that rubber seals stay sealed. Modern engines and modern fuel systems don't need to use those older seal materials, and they can use new materials. Um, so there's two paths to getting 100% SAF. One is you make the SAF chemically identical to fossil drive fuels. And so there's a lot of effort looking into advancing how do you synthesize um, sustainably those aromatic chemicals. I think that that's probably going to be done in the next year. Um, and, and so you will probably see that blend limit be, be removed and you'll be able to operate on 100% sustainable aviation fuels. The challenge is those aromatic molecules um, have some detrimental effects to the environment. They produce particulate matter, um, which affects local air quality around airports. Um, and it also acts to magnify the impact of contrail formation. And contrails are, are also a um, impact on the, the climate. And so what we're looking to do is we're designing our aircraft and engine working with our partners to um, ensure compatibility with 100% SAF that doesn't have 
those aromatic chemicals. And so we're able to operate on both 100% SAF, but also unlock the improved benefits of using a, a cleaner SAF that doesn't have aromatic molecules. So let's talk about uh, noise pollution. Uh, one of the things about the Concorde, I know it was, it was very loud, but uh, you said that the sonic boom uh, will only be over water, but you are going to have land-based uh, flights, which fly at about 20% over uh, current commercial flights. Uh, how do you see noise pollution going forward with the adoption and expansion of this technology for more really overland flights? Yeah, so that's a really great and, and multifaceted question. Um, so there's two components to noise pollution. The first is, for us, sonic boom noise. And like you said, like we, we talked about earlier, our entire business case for Overture is, is focused on only flying supersonically over water. So we don't have to worry about sonic boom noise hitting communities. The second aspect of noise is landing and takeoff noise. So this is noise around airports. Um, and we're actually, we've done a lot of innovation in advanced noise reduction technologies, um, as well as procedures um, that enable us to meet the same noise requirements that subsonic uh, aircraft are subject to, um, something called Chapter 14 noise levels in the International Civil Aviation Organization. So um, we expect to blend into airport um, existing noise footprints without really a, a noticeable difference. I do think that there's some interesting innovation going on uh, as it relates to overland um, supersonic flight. Um, so NASA and Lockheed have partnered on the X-59, uh, which is a low-boom technology demonstrator. Um, and so they are ad advancing technologies that turn a sonic boom into uh, what's often called a, a quiet thump or a sonic thump. Um, instead of it being a sharp crack or, or two sharp cracks, which is what a, a sonic boom currently is, it's more of a gradual onset and, and decay, more like closing a, a, a car door um, is, is what a, a low boom aircraft would, would sound like from the ground. That aircraft, the X-59, I think is slated to fly um, in the next year as well. And uh, so we're excited to see the results of, of that aircraft test um, you know, that testing will be used to measure community responses. So you have to make sure that any change in the current uh, aviation regulations account for uh, community input. And so the X-59 program will fly over communities and the communities will provide responses to the quiet thumps at various noise levels. That data will then go to the International Civil Aviation Organization, where they're expected to set a global international standard for uh, acceptable en route sonic boom noise. That's going to be a relatively slow process, and, and uh, we didn't want to, uh, frankly, bet our business case on a, a change in, in policies. And so that's why our first product is uh, really focused on being profitable for a, a wide variety, about 600 different uh, predominantly overwater routes. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all of this and more. Visit www.se.com 
backslash US backslash EAAS to find out if energy as a service is right for you. And as you look through your entire supply chain, what are you doing from an emissions standpoint to focus on on each step of the way? So scope one, two, three emissions, but the whole process from soup to nuts, uh, what is Boom doing from a sustainability standpoint across that? Um, like any good net zero strategy, measure, reduce, offset. And so measurement starts with measurement. Uh, we partnered with Watershed, um, a climate solution software to help us with our measurements. Uh, we've measured scope one, two, and three. Um, going back to 2019. And so now we're in the the reduce phase. And so what that looks like is for things like our final assembly line, um, ensuring that there's no on-site combustion for scope one. So using electric vehicles um, in the shop, um, using um, heat pumps and electric furnaces, um, as opposed to to natural gas combustion furnaces. So we're, we're again, because we're building our facilities from scratch, we can implement those from the get-go um, scope two, we're already using uh, 100% renewable energy from Excel Wind Source here in Colorado. We're excited to announce some uh, some on-site energy production uh, in in the near future. Um, so looking to to get on-site solar, um, and then scope three is really kind of the big, always the the broadest scope. Um, and so we're working with our upstream suppliers to understand their carbon footprints and, and emissions footprints and looking for opportunities to reduce those footprints. We're also um, partnering with with airlines that have a similar vision as us, that have set science-based targets um, and that are committed to net zero um, carbon operation of the Overture fleet. Out of curiosity, on the design for Overture, is it very similar to the Concorde just in terms of, of size? I, I was fortunate enough to, to fly the Concorde once from a uh, New York to Paris, and I, I was amazed. It's actually pretty tight in there. It was it was great to be arriving so quickly, but it was still fairly tight. Just curious how your design may be different than that. Yeah, well, first off, jealous that you got to fly on the Concorde. I uh, unfortunately missed that uh, opportunity, so looking forward to, to Overture. Yeah, there's a, a considerable number of differences. So some concepts, uh, you know, to to uh, the average kind of layperson, they may look similar. It is four engines under wing. It is a delta shaped wing, but that's uh, kind of where the, the the differences stop. Just about every aspect of Overture has received benefits from the sixty years of innovation um, since the Concorde. Um, so when you look at our wing plan form, you'll notice differences in the shape, in the leading edge angles, the trailing edge angles. Um, all of that has been optimized for increased performance. Uh, when you look at the fuselage, the Concorde was a constant area fuselage. Um, it looked like a cylinder. In supersonic aerodynamics, uh, there's a concept called area ruling, um, sometimes referred to as the Coke bottle shaping, um, where the cabin, the fuselage gets wider ahead of the wing and then reduces in, in diameter over the wing. And that has a huge performance benefit on the vehicle. The Concorde knew about this concept. It was just kind of emerging, but because they were using metallics, they couldn't create that complex curvature. Um, and so implementing that area ruling um, really uh, unlocks a lot of benefits. It also makes the cabin much, much more spacious because we do have that nice big fuselage area for most of the passenger area. So uh, we're looking to have uh, much more comfortable seating than the Concorde. Um, we actually have some of the Concorde seats in our hangar, and I agree, they are quite small. Um, so we're really trying to remove all the barriers to travel 
not just time and, and sustainability, but also make a much more comfortable and relaxing experience through how we're designing the cabin. It was interesting when I walked on for the first time. It was one of those things where you walk on, you go, well, wait, where's the rest? Like, this is, I felt like I was kind of getting on a bus and it was supposed to be uh, very different. So I was curious as to, to the design differences. But I'm looking forward to seeing how, like you said, the innovation since then has come to, to the rollout of, of Overture. Yeah. And I mean, one other big one is the Concorde. The engine technology of the time required them to use afterburners, which are just incredibly loud when you're landing and taking off, as well as very inefficient. And so, um, you know, it's maybe not not a obvious when you look at it, but using modern turbofan engines really improves our performance, both from a noise and emissions aspect compared to the Concorde. From a regulatory standpoint, how are you finding the current environment for your progress? Yeah, so regulatory, we are a new OEM. So when we think about um, our mission, it's it's to advance the speed of aviation, but it's built on a foundation of safety and sustainability. And so we're in frequent conversations with the FAA to ensure that we are uh, meeting and exceeding um, you know the standards of of the aviation industry and upholding the uh, extremely safe legacy of the aviation industry. It's currently the safest form of transportation. Um, and so we've been working with with the FAA hand in hand, like I said, um, to make sure that we're getting their feedback early in the design process. Um, on the regulatory side of things, when we think about uh, an environmental, that's mostly done through the International Civil Aviation Organization. They're a UN body um, that sets uh, global uh, environmental standards. And then those standards are adopted sometimes modified by by the individual um, country aviation authorities. Like I said, we, re- we have a, a very strong commitment to responsibly introducing this new product. Uh, and that looks like, uh, you know, pursuing the same landing and takeoff noise levels as subsonic aircraft. And so we're seeing um, that be progressed through the International Civil Aviation Organization like I said, on sonic booms, uh, we're also not um, relying on a change in regulations there, um, although are obviously monitoring the X-59 program and how that will inform regulators going forward. And how are you finding the current environment around policy? Uh, we recently had the IRA that was passed, and there were some sustainability and, and green tech benefits involved in that. Uh, are you finding it conducive to what you're trying to achieve? Or is there, you think that there's, I mean, there's obviously going to be more to come because of the discussions going on in Washington right now. Uh, but do you see that continuing to help what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, there's a lot of excitement around innovation across the board. Um, and certainly those policies are, are um, uh, contributing to some, some key pieces of progress. Um, in particular, a lot of policies for advancing uh, sustainable aviation fuels, really critical tax credits that help advance those, um, as well as on the hydrogen side, um, seeing advancements in production there, uh, the 45Q tax credit on carbon capture usage and storage um, is really critical as well when you think about power to liquid um, sustainable aviation fuels. And then we're also just seeing broad excitement from the investor base right now, looking to uh, you know invest in, in uh technologies that are going to come to market, like sustainable supersonics. Um, and so we're excited to be a leader there and, and are seeing very strong support uh, from the investment community as well as uh, favorable policies. What challenges do you see for Boom going forward on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, right now we're um, largely in kind of an execute mode. Um, 
our design that we released, we call uh, the production configuration. Um, and uh, we're confident that that vehicle um, could be manufactured and, and, and uh, operate efficiently. Um, we're doing some more optimization on the design. And, and so we're looking to improve from that. Um, not to say that it's going to be easy. Um, you know, we do still have a, a lot of capital funding that we'll need to raise. Um, but like I said, we're seeing really great enthusiasm from, from the investment community, um, as well as from, from our, um, manufacturing partners, um, to, to make this a reality. How were you financed to start with? So we, uh, we've been venture backed, um, largely to date. Um, you know, we've also worked with, um, uh, the United States Air Force through their Small Business Innovation Research Grant Program, uh, which we received uh, $32 million in funding through that. Um, and then airline um, prepayments are are really going to be a critical funding source going forward um, as we kind of transition out of uh, investor-backed and into um, kind of the more standard industry practice of prepayments on orders. Have you seen the investor appetite uh, on discussions you've had? I mean, I'm assuming you're talking to additional funding sources going forward um, and thinking about the capitalization of the company in the next couple of years. Uh, have you seen a, a lot of interest um, in, in what you guys are doing? Absolutely. I think there's a strong appetite for um, innovation in this space, both in terms of speed and sustainability. Um, and so we've seen a, a very strong investor support um, all the way through COVID and then um, continuing forward. And taking a step back, how are you seeing overall from a global standpoint the aviation industry as it relates to attacking carbon emissions? I know we've talked a little bit about right now, but but really taking a step back and looking at the industry as a whole, what are your thoughts on on how well they're doing? What more can be done from the airlines? Yeah, so right now, I think the industry has a high high priority on this. Um, currently, um, aviation accounts for um, between 2 and 3% of global emissions. It does have a, a greater than that impact on economic development. Um, so I think it's important to keep in mind that there's the, the benefits of, of aviation and travel on the global economies. Um, that being said, two to three percent of, of global e emissions is is still too much, and the aviation industry recognizes that. So there have been broad commitments from airlines to decarbonize by 2050. The U.S. Uh, through the FAA released their uh, uh, aviation climate action plan last year, which showed a path to to decarbonizing uh, the U.S. aviation industry by 2050. And so there's there's pretty broad alignment that uh, we have to be net zero carbon by 2050. I personally don't think that that's fast enough. Um, when you look at what it takes to to uh, to cap global warming at 1.5 degrees Celsius, and so it's important to see um, entities uh, be even more aggressive and more forward-looking than that. So, Boom signed the Amazon Climate Pledge, uh, committing to to net zero by 2040. Uh, we've seen a couple of other aviation entities and airlines uh, commit to that. We're targeting net zero carbon by 2025, uh, which is very aggressive, but we think that we have a path to get there because we are a new company with a clean sheet aircraft. And then it's also great to see uh, airlines committing to science-based targets um, with significant reductions uh, in the 2030 to 2035 timeframe. The biggest challenge for the entire industry to decarbonize is availability of sustainable aviation fuel. Um, even at the current prices, there is uh, extremely high demand, 
and uh, unfortunately limited supply. But I think that's just the reality of uh, an industrial process. So it takes four to six years to build a sustainable aviation fuel plant. And so the demand that we're seeing, uh, which has skyrocketed in the last two years, um, I think it'll just take kind of one iteration. So hopefully four to five years from now, uh, we see SAF supply rapidly raising to meet demand and enabling airlines to meet their science-based targets in the 2030 to 2035 timeframe. Do you think those targets are achievable? And, and the reason I ask is, is you mentioned the sustainable fuel and the supply crunch. We're seeing that across various technologies as it relates to the energy transition. So uh, battery materials, for example, um, you know, there is, uh, there's supply crunches on raw materials for green technologies, just because they've advanced or the demand has spurred so much over the past couple of years uh, that supply is really having a hard time to to come up. And I'm, I'm, I think some of these targets that either governments have come out with or industry has come out with might be a little bit unachievable when you really look at what they might be facing on a supply chain standpoint. So do you think what they're putting out there are achievable within those timeframes? Yeah, I think that's a really great question, and it's something that uh, we have to remain cognizant of. The best part about SAF is that it's it's not just one thing. Well, it's often talked about as SAF. Um, it's actually, there's nine different production pathways that are currently approved. Uh, two or three more are, are going to be approved here shortly, and there's another several dozen in development. And they use a broad array of different raw materials to uh, produce this fuel. Um, ranging from cellulosic cover crops to municipal solid waste, your your landfill, your trash, um, forest and agricultural residues, um, waste uh, cooking oils, um, and and all of those biomass feedstocks across the board. There have been multiple studies, um, one by McKinsey, one by the Department of Energy, show that there is adequate uh, biomass feedstock to meet uh, aviation demand for sustainable aviation fuel. And all of that is even before you look at the power to liquid, uh, which is, um, you know, in theory, nearly unlimited um, because there's there's far too much carbon in the atmosphere. Um, and so those power to liquid technologies will only be limited by the availability of renewable energy. And that's why, again, I think it's important that everybody's pulling in the same direction to increase the availability of renewable energy. Um, again, all that's not to say it's going to be easy. Um, it takes a combination of uh, government policies and uh, commercial uh, private investment in demand to uh, ensure that we capitalize on the available feedstocks, the available raw materials, and get supply up to the 50, 60, 70% mark um, that we need it to be at by the end of the, the decade. And that broad array of raw materials to manufacture the sustainable aviation fuel. In terms of the refining process, is that all, is it similar for all those various raw materials or is there a, a lot different process that goes into it? I mean, obviously there's going to be a different one based on the raw material, but how complicated is the change in the refining process based on the different raw material? So that depends on the raw material. Um, some of them um, allow for co-processing, um, effectively allowing for um, you know, minimal retrofit of existing refineries, um, things like the waste oils, um, those are, are relatively easy to process. Um, similarly, you have uh, 
the technology called alcohol to jet. And so that can leverage the existing ethanol refineries and then add a process to convert um, ethanol to jet fuel. Um, so those two can largely leverage a lot of the existing infrastructure. Some of the other technologies are, are slightly different and would require new refining infrastructure, um, particularly things like uh, the power to liquids that are using new innovative catalysts that enable that uh, conversion. So we talked about hydrogen and obviously sustainable aviation fuel. Are there any other technologies that you see out there in aviation that you think is going to be a game changer or at least make a significant impact 10, 20 years down the road? Yeah, another good question. There are other mechanisms. Um, in the industry, it's often called a, a basket of measures. There are things like uh, advanced air traffic control. How, how often have you gone out and sat on the tarmac and just idled your engine while you're in the taxi lane. So there's ways that we can look at the the operational processes to reduce fuel burn. Um, same with when you're coming in on approach. Um, maybe you've had to circle the airport before. And so having better air traffic management when you come into approach would be, would be one mechanism. There's also a, a plethora of technologies at the aircraft level that you can look at to reduce drag or improve engine fuel efficiency. Um, those are going to be smaller step changes, maybe a, a percent or a couple of percent at a time. Um, and that's why I think sustainable aviation fuel is so important because that just about overnight or within the four or five years it takes to produce the, the refineries will enable the entire fleet to decarbonize at 50, 60, 70% carbon reductions. Um, so I do think that there are emerging technologies that will make relatively small improvements. Um, SAF is not the single silver bullet or SAF and hydrogen are not it alone, um, but they are certainly the fastest way to get the biggest benefit. There is one other tech, you know, batteries uh, are discussed a lot, particularly in the automotive space. They are being used for aviation, uh, but they're because of the challenge with batteries, it takes 25 pounds of batteries to for, to for the same amount of energy that one pound of, of jet fuel contains. And so uh, batteries really aren't viable for long haul aviation, at least not in their current state. They would need to get much, much lighter um, to be used for longer flights. So I think um, the emerging electric vertical and takeoff and landing uh, vehicles that we're seeing um, are really a new sector of short transportation, maybe up to a couple hundred miles. Um, so I think that they're a really exciting technology, but I don't think um, battery technology is going to, to fundamentally revolutionize your kind of long-haul transoceanic uh, flights. Yeah, I mean, I think it, like everything with the energy transition, it's a multitude of different technologies that are playing a part uh, and get hit, trying to hit the, or at least get as close to the targets as as we can by the timeline. But uh, I'd be surprised if anybody uh, listening to this podcast has not circled an airport before. <laughs> I'm sure everybody has pulled their hair out at one time or the other, uh, circling around trying to land. Uh, difficult, difficult question. Looking in, into your crystal ball, but where do you see boom and the technology advancing by you know beyond even 2050? I mean, how do you see the industry? going for because obviously the way that I'm thinking about it is faster planes, more fuel efficient, environmentally friendly, but those are really big, easy keywords to throw out there. But how do you see it, uh, particularly with your technology uh, beyond the, the 2040 timeframe? Yeah. Uh, well, let me pull out my crystal ball. 
First and foremost, every aircraft will be operating on SAF or hydrogen by 2050. I think that that's uh, their strong alignment, like we discussed, from the airlines, from governments, from vehicle manufacturers to make that happen. The future I'd love to see is that every flight that you hop on uh, is flying supersonically. I think technology always progresses. You know, it's pretty rare that you see see a field go backwards. And I think as we're doing in a sustainable manner, I think that that will hopefully drive other manufacturers to speed up as well. And it, it really turns into a competitive, almost synergistic relationship where competition drives innovation and we see advancements across the board. You know, I think from from here, you go either larger, um, so you can carry more passengers, um, longer range, so you can go further without stopping, um, or faster. Uh, so we're designing for Mach 1.7. I think that the technologies will enable the frontier to continue pushing forward to faster and faster flights um, as you have broader adoption um, of the kind of previous generation of supersonics. So I'm really optimistic that this starts uh, a revolution. And like I said, on hydrogen, I'd love to see that technology advance um, such that it can be considered for all of aviation. Um, but I think that's still 20 or 30 years out. So, you know, maybe 20, 2060, let's say we're flying at Mach 2 powered by hydrogen. Hey, no, no, very interesting uh, on, the, on that point. I look forward to seeing how Boom continues to develop and the overture for eventual flights in 2029 and see how the sustainable aviation fuel impacts not only Boom, but the industry going forward and how that continues to develop over the coming years. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Absolutely. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what the future holds. And uh, thanks again for having me. The RE Plus Conference is the clean energy industry's largest and most comprehensive event in North America. It's taking place this year in Anaheim, California from September 19th through September 22nd. Wood McKenzie is excited to be attending the conference this year, and we hope to see you there on the floor. To learn more about RE Plus, including how to buy tickets, visit woodmac.com backslash RE Plus.